Our text for this morning is John chapter 12. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, we're going to be looking at the first 33 verses in John 12. John 12, 1 through 33. Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the, large, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is, it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. 
The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Father, I ask that you would give us eyes to see, that your spirit would enlighten our eyes to see the riches that are in this word. Father, I pray that uh, you would bring life and fruit from your word. Father, let it hit us in our heart and not merely remain in our minds. Uh, we ask for supernatural work, a spiritual work, Father, that you'd be glorified. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When we come to Palm Sunday, I think I've heard preachers say the, the same thing almost uh, every time uh, we consider uh, this story and this text, it, it's kind of cliche. It's something like this. How is Jesus worshipped on Sunday by the crowds and then killed on Friday? What happens in that amount of time where Christ is worshipped but then killed that the crowds would call for a murderer rather than be given Christ. But that statement, in a sense, is can only be made with the superficial reading of the text. Because as we look at John's version of the triumphal entry, we one of the things we see, and maybe the main thing we see, is that while it's called the triumphal entry, it's sad. There's a soberness that John points us to even on this day where there's great celebration. And in a sense, uh, there's an uproar in Jerusalem. A seemingly good one that's recognizing Christ. But how did Christ experience that day? What was it like from his perspective? And we could look at all the different accounts. And I just want to point you to Luke's for a moment. And you're probably familiar with uh, the thing Luke writes about when he, when he says in Luke 19.41, when he drew near, he saw the city, and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that, he, that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Did you know that he said that during the event of the triumphal entry? 
that that's the event that's taking place. If you read the verses previously, he's coming into Jerusalem. And as Jesus is coming in, he's weeping. While the crowds are rejoicing and hailing him as king. And he says in verse 42 of Luke 19, he says, if they only had known the things that make for peace. And the only thing that can make peace for them is a crucified Savior and a crucified King. And that's the very thing they would never lift their voices for. They don't want that king. They want a political king. And so as we look at John's account in John 12, there's really one main charge in this sermon, and that is to love Christ above all. A simple statement that requires the Holy Spirit and a holy war within the believer for that to be true. With four points, I think you'll see in this text, to love Christ more than money, to love Christ more than emotional fervor, emotional worship even, to love Christ more than entertainment, and to love Christ more than this earthly life itself. And we get to see examples of those who do that and those who don't. We get to see Mary versus Judas. We get to see the disciples versus the Jewish leaders. And we get to see the Greeks versus the Jewish crowd. And the question ultimately is going to come back to, because a sermon is not just about being having your mind challenged to say, oh, that's interesting, but it's for real people here today in Aberdeen with real issues going on in life. And the question is, what's your relation to Christ? Because if you look at that list, these are religious people, maybe with exception to the Greeks. If you look at your notes, Judas is a disciple. The Jewish leaders are the heroes in Jerusalem and the Jewish crowd, they're the holy ones. And yet, those on the right side are without God and without Christ. Which means you can be so much and yet not love Christ. You can look religious and yet you can be without Christ. So let's look at the text. So chapter 12 begins, to lay the context a little bit, Jesus has, his ministry has been a ministry of preaching, and that preaching is accompanied by miraculous power. 
when God called Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go, Moses says, well, why will they listen to me? And he says, what do you have in your hand? And it was a staff and he threw it down and God was saying, I'm going to authenticate your word by miraculous power. And that's what God did with the prophets in the Old Testament. And Christ came preaching the good news of the kingdom and he worked miracles like no prophet had ever worked. Everyone who came for healing got healed. Can you imagine? He speaks to the sea and to the wind and the waves and it obeys Him. The demons come crying for mercy when they see Him and he, they do whatever He says. And all those miraculous powers culminate to the ultimate miracle, the one that blows people's minds, Lazarus, a good friend of his who was dead for four days. Four days dead. So that when Jesus said, roll away the stone from his tomb, his sister says, no, he's going to smell by now. Don't open the tomb. And he tells him to roll the stone away and Lazarus comes to life at Jesus' command and stands up while he's wrapped in cloth, claws around his head and his arms and his body. And Jesus says, unwrap him. Unbind him. He just gets up. And this just happened right before this text, probably earlier that week. And so the fervor for Christ is at an all-time high. People were at the funeral. And now Lazarus is there. You can go talk to him. You can go see him. And that's the context, the culmination of Christ's ministry. And, and we read six days before the Passover... Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, so they gave a dinner for him there. Now this was likely after sundown on the Sabbath, on Saturday night, and they prepare a meal. And wouldn't you love to be at that table? Wouldn't you love to be there? Lazarus and Martha and Mary and Jesus, and Lazarus has just been raised from the dead, what would that conversation be like? John MacArthur, I read in his commentary, he said, I know what I would ask. Where were you? And what was it like during those four days? And Mary... In verse 3 says, it says, Mary, therefore, because her brother had been raised from the dead. Now Mary, she, the Lord has just given her faith, it seems like, from the beginning. She knows what to value. She knows what's important. She has her eyes set on the eternal. You know the story of Mary and Martha. 
She's sitting at Jesus' feet. And Martha's concerned with all the details of the meal and life. But Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But, there's a turning point here, but Judas, you have Mary on one side and we have Judas on the other. Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, whenever the gospel writers mention Judas, they have to make that statement. It's like all they can imagine. It's the tragedy of all tragedies. The one who lived with Jesus for three years and sold him for 30 pieces of silver for money. The creator of the universe, the son of God, the fool of all fools is Judas. And you have Mary with one action and you have Judas with another. Judas speaks up. He says in verse 5, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So here's what we learn. Pure nard is worth 300 denarii. It would have been in like an alabaster jar where you would have to break the jar, break the neck off the jar to get at the ointment. How much is 300 denarii? Well, to put it in perspective, a day laborer, someone who worked all day, let's say in a vineyard, to bring a harvest in would get paid one denarii, denarii a day. So 300, and then you put the Sabbaths in there, 52 Sabbath days. This is a day laborer's yearly pay bound up in this ointment. Take your salary and imagine that amount in perfume that's broken and put on Christ. It's unbelievable, extravagant, over-the-top, reckless type of faith and love that Mary is showing Christ. And Judas says, shouldn't this be sold to care for the poor? And then we're told in verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. What makes a Judas a Judas? Simple. It doesn't mean Judas didn't like the miracles. It doesn't even mean that Judas didn't get to participate in them. Because when he said, sent out the 72, they were casting out demons. So this is someone who was attached so closely to Christ and yet 
was a thief. Those who would donate to the ministry, he would help himself because he loved money more than he loved Christ. All sorts of people in churches just like this. They love money more than they love Jesus. They love the things of this earth more than they love Christ. And we have the ultimate examples. Mary, how do you get a better example? And then Judas on the far other end of the spectrum. Jesus said to Judas, leave her alone so she may keep it for the day of my burial for the poor you'll always have with you, but you will not always have me. Does Jesus care about the poor? Jesus cares about the poor. But here's the thing. Judas has a choice. Do the poor deserve the 300 denarii or does Christ And Judas said, the poor. You see how he devalued Christ. He's going to go on to sell him for 30 pieces of silver because he loved money more than he loved Christ. And Mary didn't even know all that she was doing because she was preparing his body for burial. They would use perfume to deal with the smells when a body was going to be buried. And God's sovereign hand was even on the workings of people that don't even know how they're fitting in to God's perfect plan coming to culmination. And then in verse 9, we read, When a large crowd, and so you have another group of people, you have a large crowd of Jews, learned that Jesus was there. They came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now let's just think about the large crowd. Now this large crowd of Jews, most of them were probably coming out of Jerusalem because word is out there that Lazarus has been raised from the dead, that Jesus is in Bethany. And so they're coming this way. There would also be Jews coming in, flowing into this city because it's Passover time. Uh, And Bethany is a suburb of Jerusalem. And so there's swarms of people uh, coming into Jerusalem. Josephus said in 60 AD, there was 2.7 million people that showed up in Jerusalem for Passover. And 250,000 Passover lambs were sacrificed when those 2.7 million showed up. And if you were going to go to the temple during those days, what? how much blood would be flowing out of the temple with a quarter of a million lambs being slaughtered in one day? Literally, it would be every 10 seconds, a lamb being slaughtered, a lamb being slaughtered, a lamb being slaughtered, and blood everywhere. And Jewish children would be asking mom and dad, what's with the slaughter? 
What's it about? Why all the lambs? The pet we brought along on the journey. He, he's going to get his neck slit too, mom and dad. It's because of sin that so much blood is shed. And so when you read large crowd, you can about imagine. It's the peak of His ministry. It's the biggest miracle that's just been done. And notice John says, when they came, they came not only on account of Him, but to see Lazarus, whom He'd raised from the dead. It's a clue. This crowd and this fervor is doing what they've done all along is they love signs and wonders and miracles. And Jesus said it's an adulterous and sinful generation that looks for a sign. That's what they loved about Jesus. Jesus would teach a little bit on self-sacrifice. The crowds would scatter. He'd do some miracles. They would gather around. Uh, You need your family member healed. They would come. And so the crowds came not necessarily to worship Christ, but to see what He will do next. He's the talk of the town. Everyone's talking about Christ. And then we read in verse 13, so they, this large crowd, uh, are in verse 12, it says, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Verse 10, it says, So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So the leaders, the Jewish leaders, have murder on their mind with Christ. That's their plan. That's what they desire to do. And if they're going to murder Christ, they're going to have to murder Lazarus because Lazarus is a living example of who Christ is. And then in verse 12, it says, the next day the large crowd, so here we have the crowd again, that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. D.A. Carson writes that this probably signaled nationalist hope that the Messiah Liberator was arriving on the scene. The cry, Hosanna, originally... uh, uh, a transliteration of the Hebrew word Hosanna literally means give salvation now. So what they're crying out is give salvation now. They, They see a king that can deliver them from all of their enemies. And they're quoting Psalm 1825 which they would sing often as they would worship during these Jewish feasts. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Dedication, and uh, during the Passover, they would sing Psalm 118.25. 
And what every man and boy would do when they would get to verse 25, when they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, when they would sing that, they would wave their uh, lulabs, which were a few shoots of willow, myrtle, and palm, and they would wave them in the air when they would cry out, Hosanna. This is something they did at least three times a year. And they add to Psalm 118.25, even the king of Israel. So they're saying, those songs we sing when we wave these branches uh, is being fulfilled by Him. He's the king. It's a significant thing. It wasn't a random thing that they grabbed palm branches and said what they said. But then surprisingly, in verse 14, we read, and Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. So this doesn't fit. This puzzle piece doesn't fit. A king who's about to go into battle rides what? A white war horse. That's what they did in those days. But Jesus selects a foal of a donkey that has never even been ridden. And Jesus is pointing to the fact that what you're all screaming about, you're getting wrong. You might be saying the right words, but you have no idea what's going on right now. And it says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That might have been a little bit of a dampener on how they imagined their Messiah riding into town. And when we go read Zechariah 9, it's interesting when you read it in its context, when you read the Verses following, here's what Zechariah 9 says. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. Peace is what this one will signify. Not only does he not ride in on a white horse here, but he's going to cut off the war horse. He's going to make peace. The righteous one has shown up and with him is salvation. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, and he shall speak peace to the nations, even to the Gentiles. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So there's going to be a blood covenant that's fulfilled that 
brings peace and not only to Israel, but to the nations. And you say, well, what about the white war horse that Jesus rides on when he brings peace to Israel from all their enemies? Well, that's the verses following. That's the end of the end that we've been thinking about in, in the Gospel of Luke. And then in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. They, they didn't understand that Psalm 118.25 and Zechariah 9.9 were being fulfilled in their midst. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about Him and had done to Him. You say, well, why did they remember it then? Well, part of it is they were able to work through the events that just happened. That's kind of the obvious thing. They were able to see how Scripture was fulfilled, to go back and see how Christ needed to die on a cross. But it wasn't until Jesus was glorified that they got the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit would help them understand these things. Because if we read on in the Gospel of John... Those things have been promised. Way back in John 7.39, John says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So after he's glorified, they'll get the Spirit. And then in John 16.7, Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. So they need the Holy Spirit to even understand the Scriptures. And then in verse 12 of John 16, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he'll declare to to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me and he'll take what is mine and declare to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so Jesus says, you can't bear it now, you're not even going to understand it all now, but you're going to get the Spirit. And He'll guide you into all the truth and He will cause you to glorify Me. Any sermon I give is worthless without the Holy Spirit helping you understand the Scripture. Giving you eyes to see what's in the Scripture. John 14.25, He says, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So how can we trust Matthew's Gospel and John's Gospel and Luke's Gospel? How can we trust them that they remember what Jesus said because the Holy Spirit is the one who writes Scripture through the human agents? He brings that to their remembrance. And so there's a whole lot there when, it, when he, I think when John says they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him after he had been glorified. That's when they understood how Scripture was being fulfilled. 
And then in verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So they continued to say, look at Jesus, look at what he can do. And then verse 18 says, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was they had heard the sign they are because they heard he had done this sign. So it's the second time John points us to this Jewish crowd and lets us in on their heart motive of why they're really there. So this triumphal entry is people worshiping a Christ that doesn't exist. The political hero that's going to come and wipe Rome away this week. They didn't want the humble Savior that comes on a donkey's colt. That as soon as he gets into Jerusalem, what does he do? He tears apart the temple. Turns over the tables. Those who are getting rich off the temple. They've made it into a den of thieves and robbers. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be filled with people like Mary that worship God, not money. You start to see why he got killed on Friday? With what they were expecting? Now verse 20 is interesting. Why does John include it? Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So we've been told of some Jews, some hypocritical, say the right things with their mouth, don't love God with the heart. Jews. Not saying there's no Jewish believers. There obviously is, but the great majority in the crowd didn't love Christ. But what we read is, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. They thought maybe they got a good chance to come to Philip and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful statement? They want to see Jesus. They want to see, yeah, they probably heard about Lazarus. They want to talk to him. They want to hear from him. So at the same time, there's this emotional fervor that's going on. Uh, a crowd that's crazy that just gets everyone's emotions going. You can see this in, in these protests and these riots, people being built up. There's these Greeks that are saying, well, we want to talk to him. We want to see him. They don't seem to be caught up in all the emotionalism. This ecstatic worship that doesn't seem real concerned with Him, but with all that's going on. In fact, this is an exciting Passover. Things are happening this year. Miracles are even happening. What does this mean? Finally, Rome won't be over us. What would, it, what would the talk have been like, but these ones want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them. 
Okay. This is Palm Sunday. What does Jesus think about Palm Sunday? Because people that really want to hear, Jesus gives real answers to. People that really love Him and want to hear from Him, Jesus is going to shoot straight with. And here's what Jesus says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You want to know what I'm about? You want to know what this is about? This is about Friday. His face has been set towards Jerusalem. His hour has come. It's always been about the cross. That's been what God has sent Him to do. And Jesus gives them a straight answer. Gives them the answer that they need to hear so that they can be saved in an illustration. Unless that grain of wheat falls into the ground and germinates. It's no longer a seed at that point. It dies in a sense. If it doesn't do that, it remains alone. But if it germinates, it's going to produce much fruit. Jesus' sermons could save nobody. Does that sound blasphemous? Jesus' healings, His casting out of demons, His calming the sea, His raising people from the dead. If this moment in Jesus' life, if He gets just carried up to heaven, if He just goes right up to heaven, He remains alone. No Old Testament saints saved. No New Testament saints saved. If Jesus doesn't die, there's no fruit that comes with Him into heaven. He must die. This is the crux of Christianity. It's why the Apostle Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, I did, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ crucified. If Christ doesn't die, if Christ isn't preached, that sinners can be saved by a substitutionary death by the righteous one, He remains alone. Nobody gets saved. But those Greeks with that true faith that truly loved Him were told about the cross. And then he says in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Yes, he used the word hate. Judas loved money and he's in hell. The Pharisees loved the praise of men and they're in hell. They love their life on this earth. 
Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Jesus is saying, while they're all, this fervor is going on, they're all supposedly worshiping me. You want to know what my soul is? Troubled. You want to know why? Because he knows what he came to do. And look at what he says. Should he say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. See what I mean? How should we think about Palm Sunday? What was Jesus thinking about? He was weeping. He was tearing apart a temple and his soul was troubled. Why? Because he was a wimp? No. Because he's going to bear the wrath of God for your sin and my sin and all those who will trust in him. He's going to be temporarily cut off from the blessing of the Father and will receive the full wrath of God, which you and I can't even comprehend. And so Jesus' soul was troubled. Then a voice came from heaven. I've glorified it. The Father speaks out of heaven. He says, I have glorified my name in you. And I'll glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. You want to know what that was, I think? At this point in time, the Jewish hearts have been hardened. Their eyes have been blinded. And those who have ears to hear, hear the Father's voice. And everyone else says, did it thunder? Is there... I heard something that just happened. And then he's, and then an angel, others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice comes for your sake, not mine. Now the judge, judgment of this, or now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. We enter into the end times to the last times at this point. D.A. Carson writes, the judgment of the world, the destruction of Satan, the exaltation of the Son of Man, the drawing of men and women from the ends of the earth, these might all be reserved for the end times, but the end times have begun already. It is not there that there is nothing reserved for consummation at the end. Rather, it's that the decisive step is about to be taken in the death and exaltation of Jesus. Satan gets his fatal blow at the cross and will finally be killed in the end when he's thrown into the lake of fire. Those who want to say that he's thrown into the lake right away, my question is, is why in chapter 17 when he's praying for the believers, does he say keep them from the evil one? if he's already gone and he's not railing on Christians. But the, the decisive blow is struck. And then Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. 
He said this to show by what kind of death he is he was going to die. I think it has a double meaning. Lifted up on a cross, lifted up from the grave, triple meaning. Lifted up to glory, because the scripture speaks of Christ being lifted up in all those ways. In John 3.14, Jesus says, and as Moses is lifted up, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, and whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Luke 9.51 says, when the days drew near for Him to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. Philippians 2.8 says, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isaiah 52.13 which is directly connected to Isaiah 53 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up he shall be exalted and then uniquely he says but he'll be like one from whom men hides their faces you won't even be able to recognize him there'll be no beauty about him and then he goes into isaiah 53 he was pierced or he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned, every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was, uh, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that, is, uh, that before its shears are silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Now get this. He, so, so when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. That seed that dies and bears your guilt produces offspring. Children of God. Incredible. 750 years before it all happened, Isaiah prophesied it to the detail. Hebrews 1.3 says this, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. 
after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He was high and lifted up. And that verse makes me tremble because the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power made purifications for our sins. Can you fathom the worth of Christ? The fact that he died in your place. And I just want to point you ahead. If you read the rest of this chapter, it's sad. Verse 37 says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I'd heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him in their head, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They knew He was the Christ, but they loved the glory that comes from man. They were afraid that the Jewish leaders were going to kick Him out of church. Yeah, He's the Christ, but they believed in an unsaving way. And as I read this text, and I'd preach this text to you. I think the question when all of us have to ask our heart, do you really have any hope in this world? You really think your ambitions and the thing you're going after has ultimate worth? Or have you hated this world? That doesn't mean we're gloom and we're not thankful for the things we have. It just means even the thing you're most thankful for you realize is nothing in comparison to knowing Christ because this world is going to be gone. And your soul is eternal. And it's my prayer that you know Jesus like you know Mary, like Mary knew Jesus. That you realize the value of a relationship with Him is worth more than any amount of money, any amount of earthly praise. Father, I pray that we would be more like Mary. Father, none of us love you perfectly. But Lord, give us the types of hearts that are not hardened towards you. Soften our hearts. Let us realize that even the greatest things in this world that we ought to praise you for and be thankful for will not last they're of no value in comparison to knowing You. Lord, let our faith be that supernatural type. Let us be the fruit of Christ's death. Let us cling to Him by faith. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.